I'm Russ Morris, and this is 8-Track. Anthony Mason is a music fan and as respected a journalist as they come, having been an Emmy-winning mainstay at CBS for three and a half decades. So his song picks led to some great stories about where his love of music and journalism intersect. And it was pretty insightful flipping the script with a guy who has interviewed U.S. presidents and music industry giants. As you'll hear, Anthony also has some radio DJ dreams. So 8-Track got him a step closer. Happy to welcome Anthony Mason to the show. Hello. Thank you, Russ. It's great to be here. It is great to have you. So the premise of our show, eight songs, I imagine we'll take this all over the place. Yeah. Uh, so before we get started with your first song pick, just want to think about you in terms of, of your love of music. You know, you've been a journalist for so long. At your core, I think, kind of beats the heart of a DJ, though. In the early days, did you ever have aspirations of working in the music industry? Yeah, I told this story once, but Rita, I was I was actually before a concert a, a couple of years ago, Rita Houston, we were having cocktails together, and Rita sort of leaned across the table and she said, did you ever have any interest in doing radio? And I said, Rita, you know, actually, you know, I always kind of had this fantasy of being an overnight DJ. And Rita said, well, that could be arranged. <laughs> I was a radio junkie as a kid. I, I loved, you know, I love, honestly, I, I loved top 40 charts. I used to, uh, whenever um, Casey Kasem's American Top 40 came on every week, I would literally keep a legal pad and write down where my where my uh, favorite songs were on the charts because I couldn't afford to buy Billboard because it was really expensive. And uh, so I just, I, you know, I rooted songs on. I had, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say I had, I was at obsessive favorite bands like some people did, but um, yeah, I was really a radio junkie. Did you compare notes with friends? Like, here are the charts, and my band is number one, and your band is number two. Did you have arguments on that stuff? No, I wasn't. I mean, look, you know, I the first album I bought was uh, was the Monkees. That was my the first album I owned. Uh, I could tell you the first song I heard on my first radio. It was Petula Clark's Downtown, my first transistor radio, which I got for Christmas in like 1960, what three, four, whatever that was. Um, and I used to love to stay up late at night. Um, with my radio to try to tune in stations as far as way as I could find them. So I'd, I'd seek out the 50,000 watt stations like in there. I think there was one in Lookout Mountain, Tennessee I found one night. I used to get really excited when I could, you know, move the dial just enough to get a station to come in. And um, so it wasn't just a love of music, it was a love of broadcasting and radio too. And clearly, you know, we're going over your history in terms of, you know, the music you first discovered, but that's never ended. You know, you've always been seeking out new stuff. Such would be the case with this uh, kind of indie rock giant, Vampire Weekend. Yeah, this is a band I love. Um, I mean, I could have picked any one of probably 20 songs because uh, I've loved just about every lyric Ezra Koenig has written. Um, I picked this one because it has a great first line and I love songs with a great open. This may be, I, you know, I, I hate having a favorite band. I've never had a favorite band, but this is certainly, uh, of the contemporary bands, maybe my favorite. Baby, I know pain is as natural as the rain. I just thought it didn't rain in California. Vampire Weekend and This Life, 
you know, all the riffs, all the lyrics. I mean, Vampire Weekend just an incredibly fun band, so I love that choice. Yeah, you know, I was really worried when Rustam left the band, you know, what was going to happen to them and what they were going to sound like. And it took a while for this album to come out. And then when I heard it, I was, I was, I just love it. Uh, and I was so excited that, you know, that, that they were still alive and ticking in every sense of the word. You've been cheating on, cheating on me. I've been cheating on, cheating on you. You've been cheating on me. But I've been cheating through this life. And all it's suffering. Definitely, um, it's always cool to see a band continue to to take leaps forward, you know, a few records into their career. Uh, you've done interviews with presidents, with world-famous musicians, film stars, TV stars. Does one stand out for you as maybe most challenging? Um, you mean one particular interview? Yeah. Well, I'll be honest. I, I, I mean, I interviewed Van Morrison, uh, I don't know, probably seven, eight, nine years ago now. And a lot of people said to me, ahead of time. He's going to be very difficult. So I was really nervous about it. Um, he's known as being kind of a prickly guy. Uh, and I had never met him before and he didn't do very many. I, I, it's funny because when I actually sat down to start to talk to him uh, and we did the interview in the Cafe Carlisle here in New York, he was in New York. He was wearing a green satin suit, as I remember, and a hat. Um, and we were in this very intimate space and he started talking and I just had this, my, a voice in my head said to myself, I don't think I've ever heard Van Morrison just talk. It was so unusual. You know, you're so used to hearing interviews with all the musicians you love. He's just not a guy who's talked much. And we ended up having this incredibly kind of casual, fun conversation. Basically, because just I, I decided I was just going to talk to him. I wasn't going to interview him, you know. And that surprised me. It surprised a lot of other people. That's and and what I realized afterwards was I actually enjoy talking to people who are supposedly difficult. Um, you know, if somebody tells me you know he's a really hard interview, um, and I, and that's happened to me a couple of times, and I, I usually answer, well, that's kind of my favorite kind. There's just something about the challenge of making somebody comfortable in that situation. Um, I was going to say, does that, does that put a little chip on your shoulder? Almost like, well, if this guy's hard to do, I can do this. I yeah, can no, this it's one. it's just like it's like artists are are because they express themselves in their music or their paintings or whatever it is, they're putting a lot of themselves out there so they feel very vulnerable. So the first thing you have to do is, is make them feel comfortable, which involves showing a certain amount of respect for what they do. And I have enormous respect for the creative process and, and, uh, and what goes into it. And I'm fascinated by, you know, how a song comes out of, how the, literally out of the air. It's one of the things that I enjoy most about talking to musicians and why I've interviewed so many is because everybody has a different process. And these things literally do come out of the air. There's, you know, they, it starts with a couple of notes and something floating through space that a musician or a songwriter latches onto and then goes with. And, and then when these things, the, the songs that become, you know, insanely popular, it's just, it's this kind of, it's what Tom Petty said. It's the one place he knew where magic was real. And that's what I love about it. So many other things are mathematical and formulaic and you can sort of figure it out. There's something about music that isn't. There's, it's almost mystical, you know, to use a Van Morrison word. Um, and, and so I love discussing the process by which people find these things and how they come into being. And the very often with musicians and artists, how years after they've written something, 
that they realized what it was actually about. And they maybe didn't know it at the time. There's an interesting pick that you have as your second choice on a track. And this is very early in the career of Florence and the Machine. Yeah. Uh, was it just Florence's voice that um, that was the standout for you? What was the thing that connected you to this? I had read about Florence because I was watching sort of what was going on in England. There was a lot of Adele was coming up at that time. Florence was coming up. There were a lot of really interesting people. And I had read about her and I had listened to her on probably on YouTube. And she was playing her first gig in New York at the Bowery Ballroom. I think it may have been her first gig in the country. And I really wanted to go see her. And nobody I knew had ever heard of her, so I literally went alone. Between two lines I mean, it, it was after 10 o'clock and she still had not come on the stage. And I was looking around the room and everybody in the room was 20 years younger than me, at least. And I was thinking to myself, I may be getting a little too old for this, you know? And finally, around about 10.30, um, out she came in this flowing white dress, floodlit from behind. And the first song she played that night, I literally was thrilled by by what I saw and what I heard. And I thought, oh, this is why I'm here. And this is why I still come to concerts. never forgotten that moment. It's not my favorite Florence song, but it's the first one I ever heard live, and I will never forget hearing it. Florence the Machine and Between Two Lungs on a track. This is a track from WFUV. Rose and flows of angel hair And ice cream castles in the air Seal in a live version of Joni Mitchell's Both Sides. Now it is 8-Track. I'm Russ Boris. Anthony, tell me about that live version. Well, it was at Joni Mitchell's 75th birthday celebration. I wasn't there. I just heard the recording of it. But I was really curious who, who they were going to have sing that song. Because I had it, the first concert I ever saw uh, back in the late 60s, I can't remember the exact year, was a Judy Collins concert at Carnegie Hall. A friend invited me. And to be honest, I knew one Judy Collins song, and it was both sides now. And it was one of those concerts where you're sitting there waiting to hear the one song that you know. And she finally sang it. And Judy still does an unbelievable version of it. I've looked at clouds from both sides now. From up and down. Still somehow it's clouds illusions I recall. I really don't know clouds at all. And then, of course, Joni Mitchell, whose song it is, recorded it and recorded it again, I think, like 25 or 30 years later. And that's probably my favorite version. It's a very slow, subtle version of it. 
but uh, I was really surprised when I saw the track list for Joni's birthday and Seal's name was next to this. So I was like, I got to hear what they did with this. And I think it's just a beautiful version. The dizzy dancing way that you feel Is every fairy tale comes real I've looked at love that way You know, in certain circles, Kiss Morose is a classic. So that's all good that we break out the seal. Yeah, well, I, I have to tell you, the, the uh, seals, I think it was his debut album. When I was based in Moscow for CBS, that was the most played album among the expat community in Moscow uh, in my time there. So I have a soft spot for Seal. Um, you know, he went in a direction that I didn't necessarily follow later on, but I really love this. I really do. I've looked at love from both sides now. All right, so we're going to go in a bit of a, a different direction here. And I'm pretty excited about this. So I, I want to know the origin of your connection to All Night from Chance the Rapper. This is a song my son put on in the car. And I mean, he was like, I looked at him and I was like, Nick, what's this? And he goes, this is Chance. And I love the lyrics immediately. And it's become kind of a family car song anytime we take a trip. Everybody outside, when I pull up outside all night, though. Everybody high five, everybody wanna smile, everybody wanna lie, that's nice, no. Oh, now you wanna chill, oh, now you wanna build, oh, now you got the build, that's cool, though. Oh, now you got the gas, oh, now you wanna laugh, oh, now you need a cab, that's true. I know most of the lyrics, and I don't usually, the lyrics don't usually stick in my head, but I, there are certain ones that I love in this song and that we all sing aloud together as a family, so. Um, I, it was my son who turned me on to Chance, and and that's why I, I, I put it on this playlist. All right, so this is a, a, a car song. This is also like a two and a half minute song. Does this get looped? Do you play it like, you know, 20 no, times? No, we'll play it a couple of times because we'll, okay. we'll, we'll have such a good time screaming the lyrics out loud. We'll play it again. I don't trust no one, faking like a fan, asking for a pic. You should use your phone, call a Uber, you a goofy if you think I don't know you need a lift. Is you, is or is you ain't got gas money? No IOUs or debit cards, I need cash money. So back up, back up, I need space now. I need you to slow down, it's not a race now. I can't really hear what you gotta say now. Shut up. Start dancing. From Chance to Bruce, it's 8-Track with Anthony Mason. Springsteen and Brilliant Disguise on 8-Track. Anthony, as I got your list and we talked about this beforehand, I was somewhat concerned that you and I were going to talk about Tunnel of Love for about half an hour. Yeah, I could talk about it for half an hour. I sure could. <laughs> Tell me what I see when I look in your eyes. Is that It came along at a really pivotal moment in my life because I had just uh, separated from my first wife and I was living in Moscow. Uh, I mentioned before I was assigned there to CBS and I was in the bureau there and, and Tunnel of Love had come out and it was like everything that I was going through. Um, 
And so it, it literally, I would take jogs in the park across the street from the CBS Bureau in, in Moscow, uh, you know, three or four times a week. And, and that I would play that album start to finish every time. I played it for weeks and weeks and months and months. And the lyrics of it just, it's in, in many ways, it's my favorite Bruce album because he, I don't think he did another sort of essentially an album uh, about a breakup. Um, it's an album that I know for a lot of Bruce fans isn't necessarily a favorite, but it's, it's up there at the top for me. I think the problem is, um, you know, maybe it's just that the 80s production for some doesn't hold up. But yeah. to your point, I think the writing on it is so brilliant that it can go past that. It's really, in many ways, a companion album to Patti Schiaffa's uh, debut album, Rumble Doll, um, which is, of course, who he ended up going to after breaking up with his wife. And it's a conversation, in effect, between Bruce and Patti. And you can hear, kind of, if you listen to the two for a while, you can hear the back and forth that's going on between the two of them. And my now wife, who I, was, I ended up living with in Moscow, she was playing Patty's album. I was playing Bruce's album, and and it was it was just part of this massive conversation and and self examination I was having at the time. And the lyrics in this song are so incredible. And the final line of the song literally used to just give me chills every time I heard it. God have mercy on the man who does what he's sure of. When I put this list together and I said, they said to you in the note, uh, damn Russ, this is incredibly hard, because I think this is the fourth version I came up with and I could have come up with 20 more. But um, I tried to find each, each song has a lyric or, or lyrics that have a particular power or meaning to me. And um, this one ha is, is probably the most important set of lyrics that I've dealt with in any song and the most meaningful set for me in my life. That is, uh, that is quite a love story right there. Yeah. Um, so fast forward a number of years, you know, after you firstly, you know, kind of absorb this record, you eventually get to the moment where you get to spend some time with Bruce and interview him. Did you have that in the back of your head? Don't be Farley with, you know, Paul McCartney on SNL and yes. just say like, remember when you were in the Beatles? Yeah. That was really cool. I, th this is a thing I learned really early on. The first, the first music interview I ever did was Bruce Springsteen which was insane because I had seen Bruce at age 16 at the garden he opened for Chicago. Um, I wasn't a Jersey kid, so I didn't get that whole uh, exposure. But, uh, and I, I went to see Chicago and Bruce was the opening act and I actually thought his name was Bruce Springsteen or something. I didn't even know how he spelled his name. Um, but I fell in love with him that night because he was amazing. I was like, I love Chicago, but this guy's incredible. And, uh, and I told him that story, but I realized you can't be a fanboy if you're interviewing musicians. It kind of creeps them out. And so I, I, that first interview, I always kind of, in, in many ways, I kind of regretted. I mean, I came out fine, but I, I was so 
kind of in awe. It doesn't happen very often, but I was kind of in awe that I was getting the opportunity to talk to Bruce. And subsequently, I've, I've gotten to interview him, I think, three or four more times over the years, most recently for his when his book came out. And I wasn't in awe anymore. I mean, I'm still in awe of his talent, but uh, I learned how to just have a conversation. But yeah, it was, a, it was a, it, when the first time I got to interview him, which was, I think, it was during the Devils and Dust tour. And my own daughter, my oldest daughter, who was living in Chicago at the time, who was 16, came to see the concert with me. And I'd seen Bruce when I was 16 for the first time. So I just, I, I thought, okay, there's, you know, there's, there's a synergy here. This is, this is right. Yeah. You know, you mentioned earlier just finding a way to um, to approach these artists and speak to them on a on a basic one on one level, on a human level, yeah. um, in terms of the interview. Is that something that's come kind of naturally for you? Do you kind of have to hone that over time? Well, you know, you work on anything, uh, you know, over the years. But I, I think, you know, my 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 approach has always been to try to show artists that I'm talking to that I'm I'm sincerely interested in how they make what they make. You know, and as I alluded to in, in the case of Van Morrison, you know, because so much of this stuff is incredibly personal for a lot of people, um, you know, sometimes they put up roadblocks for you to, you know, it's like checkpoints that you have to get past in the conversation for them to let you in far enough to tell you something that's meaningful. And you get past those checkpoints when you when you show that you're sincere in your interest about the creative process and the artistic process. And I find that, I mean, that's the only approach I know how to do because it's, it's genuine. I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm fascinated by the magic that comes out of people. And I know it's, it's what I love about the artistic process is it turns very often turns pain and heartbreak into something really therapeutic and positive. And to see how that's made um, is endlessly fascinating for me. I, I you know, I, I will never stop interviewing musicians and artists because for each person, the process is different. So the creative process is you see new things every time you have a conversation. Well, today your job is as a DJ, you're handling the, the choice of eight songs for eight track. And now we're moving towards the four tops. Why reach out? I'll be there. I was a big Motown kid. I loved Motown. I mean, I loved the sound. <laughs> My favorite Motown band were the Four Tops because I loved Levi Stubbs. His voice to me is, it's probably my favorite, you know, he and Sinatra, I almost put side by side, as weird as that sounds. I could have picked three or four Four Top songs. I picked this one because I love the opening line. It's just, it's all about desperation, which the Four Tops and Levi did so well. And you hear it in several songs on, on the Reach Out album, including Bernadette and Standing in the Shadows of Love. You know, so I, I had to have a, a Motown song in here because Motown just, it shook my world in so many ways. It was my introduction to, you know, what the black world was, literally. I mean, I, I, when I got to meet Barry Gordy and I did an interview with him when Motown the Musical came out, I said, you don't know what you did, but basically I, that was my way into sort of first meeting African-American artists and people. 
you know, and the next one, of course, was like probably Soul Train. You know, it's all of a sudden, you know, on your television, there's this window in. But that music, which, you know, infiltrated mainstream radio in such a massive way, basically said to me, oh, there's something completely different than what you know out there. From Motown to Nashville, this is 8-Track. Dear hate, I saw you on the news today Like a shark that takes my breath away You fall like rain, cover us in drops of pain I'm afraid that we just might Marin Morris and Dear Hate. Anthony, tell me about the roots of that particular song. Marin wrote that song after the, the shooting at a black church in Charleston, but she actually didn't put it out uh, until after the Las Vegas shooting. Uh, she had sent it to Vince Gill, asking him to put guitar or whatever he thought it would need, I think, production-wise. And Vince was so moved by it, he said, I did something that I've never done in my life. I actually sang the second verse, and he sent it back to her and said, I hope that's okay. And she was, of course, deeply touched that he'd done it. You were there in the garden, like a snake in the grass. I see you in the morning, staring through the looking glass. You whispered down through history and echoed through these halls, but I hate to tell you. They only have sung it live once, to my knowledge, which was at a, an event here in New York, uh, raising money for the Country Music Hall of Fame. And Vince actually started crying as he sang it. It's just, it's a beautifully written song. I'm, I've become a huge fan of Marin, who I met about six years ago when she was just breaking in Nashville. And I was so impressed with her then. And she has matured, I think, into one of the finest songwriters around. Um, She's also very outspoken and willing to stand up for what she believes in and in sort of in the tradition of what I grew up with in rock and roll. So I'm a big admirer and uh, I think she, I mean, those, those are two extraordinary voices uh, on that song. Absolutely, not to mention, of course, her work in The High Women. Yeah, I love them too. That's a, that's a great combo. Mar Marin's just done some amazing stuff in the last couple of years. And, and I just, I can't wait to see what she does next. Anthony, we talked so much about your, your history as an interviewer and working for CBS for so long. There has to be, or at least in my mind, there has to be some kind of bucket list for you in terms of who you have yet to interview. Is, the, is there somebody, is that one person, you know, the elusive interview for you right now that you're still hoping to get done? Um, I'd love to sit down with Joni Mitchell. I'd love to talk to Dylan. I don't know if, you know, those are, those are the ones that seem so... Um, those are fantasies, right? I mean, you, you wonder if they'll ever happen. I've, I mean, I've been so fortunate to meet a, as many people as I, you know, I, I had a list of people that I loved. Bruce was first on the list and I got to do him first, which was a little overwhelming. Um, but now I, you know, I like, uh, truthfully, I enjoy meeting new artists who are not that well known as much as, uh, as some of the ones that we all know and love. You get to see them at the beginning and, and oftentimes, like for example, I interviewed Adele when she was starting out and we ended up walking around her neighborhood and going back to the school she'd gone to high school in. I had a picture on my wall for years of Adele and everybody would walk into my office and go, who's that? And I was able to talk to Adele at a moment in time when she was very reachable and open. And 
you never forget those moments. Uh, and they never really are quite available again, understandably so, because people become so in demand and they're so reluctant to part with, you know, with everybody reaching for them, they're reluctant to part with something of themselves. Um, which is why the interviewing process for you know people who become very famous is very challenging because because everybody wants a piece of them and they're reluctant to give it up. But if you meet an artist early on, if you meet Florence like I did or Adele as I did early, and and they're just thrilled to, to see you, um, you really get a very intimate moment in time. And 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 I've had I've I've been really fortunate to have a lot of those, and I'm so grateful for them. Anthony, we are grateful for you uh, being our guest today and giving so much of yourself to A-Track. This has been an absolute uh, treat, so thank you. The treat's all mine, Russ, all mine. Uh, I want you to talk about this, though, because here's a live performance that you had a pretty specific hand in helping to make happen. It's, I, if there's anything I'm most proud of in the last year, it's this, to be honest with you. Um, I co-produced a benefit concert uh, that aired on CBS in December to raise money for uh, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and Why Hunger. And obviously putting a, a, any kind of concert together during the pandemic, and this started back in April of last year, so we really didn't know what we were doing or how we were gonna do it. But one of the things we wanted to do was have something special at the Apollo Theater. And we got John Batiste to agree to perform with us. Our music director was the great, the legendary Steve Jordan drummer, producer, who's worked with anybody you can think of. Um, and they had this idea that they wanted to do the song, uh, People Get Ready, the great Curtis Mayfield song. And I had this thought of getting uh, Emily King and Sarah Bareilles, uh, who I knew were very good friends, were here in New York and had recorded a song together and I'd seen perform together and just were magic together. So I, I said to our team, I said, what do you think? And everybody embraced it and it was like the only real live music I saw all last year. People get ready, there's a train. reasons I love it was that Emily and Sarah and John were so thrilled to be singing together uh, in the middle of all this craziness. You can you can hear it in their voices and if you actually go to playon.org you can see it in their faces. It's really the joy is is everywhere. This is another one of those moments that I will never forget. I still play it from time to time because it gives me chills and I enjoy that feeling. People Get Ready, chosen by Anthony Mason and performed by another A-Track guest, John Baptiste, along with Sarah Bareilles and Emily King. Thanks to Anthony for the time and the music. And next time, it'll be Vernon Reed picking the songs. A-Track is engineered by Jim O'Hara and produced by Sarah Wardrop. Subscribe, listen, and learn more at 8trackpod.com. 
I'm Russ Boris for WFUV in New York.